0: Hi guys, Bethan here, and I'm bringing you this update in July 2023. Back in February 2022, we released the episode that you're about to hear. In a weird coincidence, as I was researching and writing the script that January, ready to present to you guys, a specialist team of investigators were beginning their own work on a comprehensive review of this case. The task force, made up of investigators, analysts and prosecutors, teamed up with partners from the Suffolk County Police Department, the New York State Police, the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office and the FBI. They worked tirelessly to review every item of evidence and this review led to a car being linked to a potential suspect in March 2022. The investigation into this suspect is described in the affidavit as comprehensive. The investigation developed, further search warrants were granted And in January this year, the team swiped a pizza box from the suspect's bin. The evidence found, matching the DNA evidence that was found on victims, excludes 99.96% of the North American population. So this, plus the other evidence, shows that they really must have got their man. So finally, just a day ago, at the time of recording this for you guys, Prosecutors in Long Island released an affidavit detailing their case against suspect Rex Huerman. He is charged with first-degree and second-degree murder in the killings of Melissa Barthelemy, Megan Waterman and Amber Costello. He is the primary suspect in the murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. It's just incredible, guys. I'm, I've just been buzzing since I heard this information. I cannot get over the fact he's been arrested and charged it's incredible and it's incredible when you think about the the length of time this investigation was over a year before that obviously there were investigations as well but it's just it's just incredible and i'm so so pleased one of the key pieces of evidence against Hewerman are so cell phone calls and you're going to hear in this episode about how this evil evil man rang melissa's sister this is one of the pieces of evidence against him There were calls made from a burner phone to the victims that were traced towards his office. His Tinder profile with photos of him was also linked to this burner phone. The cell site data obtained by the police is almost enough to convince a jury on its own, but there's more evidence. His pickup truck was seen by witnesses um, to to one of the victims' disappearances. He matches the description of the man seen with one of the victims before she vanished. His DNA was found. His wife's DNA was found on three of the bodies. It's just impossible to think that this may not be him. Like it's, it's clearly him, isn't it guys? This case stuck with me since I first was told about it by Vicky London, our listener who recommended that I cover the case for the show. And I'm so pleased to hear about this huge development. Please go ahead and re-listen to the episode where I talked about the murdered people at the heart of this case and then join me in following the news. I'm really getting Golden State Killer vibes with this. It's, just wonderful and I'm so pleased that he's been caught. As we've said a million times on the show, we really hope that these evil people spend their lives wondering, looking over their shoulders, dreading every knock at the door. And Hewerman's search history seems to prove that he was indeed worried about his past. There were horrific internet searches made by him that helped paint the picture of this sexually deviant killer and police discovered images that he'd hunted out of the victims and their family online. However, alongside this, There were Google searches into Long Island serial killer. Why hasn't Long Island serial killer been caught? Why could law enforcement not trace the calls made by the Long Island serial killer? He had Googled the team, the investigative team. He had been searching for information about where this case was going and how the investigation was going. This, to me, shows he must have been worried. He'd even searched for a number of podcasts and documentaries regarding the investigation, which did creep me out a bit. I hope he didn't listen to my episode. I am going to be following this case intently, and it gives me such hope for the millions of other unsolved cases. I hope and pray we're going to be able to reshare other previous cases in this way again in the future. So thank you for joining me in revisiting this case. Come and join us on social media and have a discussion about this. And let me know your thoughts. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan, and sorry guys, it is just me this week. Mark's been laid up in bed with a really bad headache for like three days, so sadly for us, um, there's no Mark with us. But hopefully, he'll be feeling better really soon, and hopefully, having a little bit of a break might help him to recover a little bit quicker. So yeah, just me this time, guys. I know you don't love it when it's just a solo app, so I'm very very sorry. But before we begin, I just want to say a huge thank you to our newest patron supporters. And you know that this is from both me and Mark. It's not just from me, but both of us are so, so grateful for any support that you show us. So a big thank you to Kate Sherrard, Jeff Maiders. Meders? Maiders. I'm not sure. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go Maders. Um, Ellery Thompson, Amy Byrne. Debbie Brown and Tish. So, thank you so much, everybody. It feels weird not to have kind of talked about this with Mark and having him say thanks as well, but you all know that we both say a huge thank you. Don't forget, guys, you can also find us on social media, so Facebook and Instagram. So, come and chat to us about the cases. Hopefully, you'll be interested in chatting to us about this week's case. It's a really, really interesting one, and I think it's one that's going to have um, a lot of discussion around it as well. I think people are going to be really interested in this. It's a case that was recommended by listener, patron supporter and admin of the Facebook group. Doesn't that sound very good title? Vicky London. So she did suggest this quite a while ago. She probably thinks we forgot or that we just chose not to cover it. And um, so, yeah, hopefully a nice surprise for her that we're covering this this week. It is an unsolved case from New York, from Long Island, to be precise. And the case has a number of different elements to it. I've personally really enjoyed looking at this in more detail because it's so fascinating, but it's also incredibly heartbreaking because this is an unsolved case and it remains unsolved to this day. The first part to this case takes us to May 2010 and to the Gilbert family. So the family consisted of mum, Marie Gilbert, and then her daughters, Shannon, Sherry, Stevie and Sarah. It was in the early hours of the 1st of May, so 4.51 in the morning to be precise, when 25-year-old sex worker Shannon made a frantic and distressed, 22-minute-long 911 call from inside a client's house. She'd gone to this client's house in a gated community, and it's known as Oak Beach, but for some unknown reason, rung the police and then fled the home. And during the call, she told the operator that there's someone after me, they're trying to kill me. And on the recording, two male voices are also heard in the background Her driver, Michael Pack, and the man who hired her, so the client, Joseph Brewer, and Brewer was telling her to leave his home. There were three other calls. So Shannon went to a neighbour's home at 5am and he heard someone yelling, help me, he opened the door, and he said that she just kept saying, help me, but wouldn't answer his questions. He called 911 and told her to come inside and sit and wait, but she ran away instead and she hid under his boat outside and her driver pack apparently drove slowly past outside. Later, she went to another neighbour's home. This woman said she was there at like 5.21am and knocked on her door. This lady called 911 as well, but Shannon ran away and after that, nobody heard from her again. And a point to note, the recordings of the calls were kept private by the police. This is something I will come back to a couple of times, but basically the lawyers for the Suffolk County Police Department have fought for the release of these recordings. They argue that it would jeopardise the ongoing investigation. But in 2018, a judge disagreed and ordered the evidence to be released. This decision was then affirmed by the New York State Appellate Division in 2020 We will look at this again, but just to let you know, we don't actually know for sure exactly what's said on those tapes. Shannon fled the house on foot. Police were dispatched to the scene, but by the time the police responded to the call, an hour later, Shannon was nowhere to be found. And that does bother me a little bit. An hour later, this is a woman saying, help me, there's someone after me. And she's on foot and it's the middle of the night. Like, mm, It really bothers me it took an hour. A search was started, but Shannon's body wasn't discovered until more than a year later. Later, early in December 2011, Shannon's purse and phone were finally found. And then just a few days later, a quarter of a mile away, her body was recovered. And it was the 13th of December 2011 by this point. So um, she'd gone missing in May, 1st of May 2010 and wasn't found until December 2011. Shannon was found in a swamp filled with thorny brush. And police said that they believed that Shannon Gilbert drowned by accident. Speaking at a press conference at the time, the police commissioner said she travelled at least half a mile, three quarters of a mile on foot through that muck. It would be very easy to get exhausted and fall down and not be able to move any further. And an autopsy carried out on Shannon's body by a medical examiner proved inconclusive and in the aftermath of her death, Suffolk County Police deemed her cause of death to be as a result of drowning. However, the Gilbert family refused to believe this. Marie and Shannon's and then also Shannon's three sisters, believed that Shannon had been murdered. And they called for the police to arrange the recording of the 911 call that Shannon made on the night she was disappeared to be released. They also arranged for an independent autopsy. So performed by the renowned forensic pathologist, Michael Baden, this found that Shannon Gilbert had suffered injuries consistent with homicidal strangulation. Police have said consistently that they do not believe her death was anything but an accident. So there's these two very contrasting Outcomes of different autopsies and the different pathologists have come up with completely different answers here. So, John Ray is an attorney hired by Shannon Gilbert's mum, Marie, and John Ray will come up a lot in this. He sued to obtain the 911 call as part of a wrongful death action in 2012. So, as I mentioned before, the police refused and they said it could hamper their investigations. But this does seem really mad to me because their answer was that it was nothing but a tragic accident and she drowned. Attorney Ray then explained that the family have a right to listen to the recording. If it's not part of a criminal investigation, especially, he said, if there's nothing of significance criminally on the tapes, we have a family that wants to hear her voice and we have a civil reason to have the tape. There's no reason to not give them up unless they're important criminally. And if they are, then there's something on the tape that they don't want us to hear. Maybe evidence, or maybe they erased the tape or doctored it. Otherwise, there can't be a reason to hold them back. And I just can't work it out myself. The case of Shannon is still officially classed as an accidental drowning, but Marie and her other daughters frequently appeared on television shows discussing the case, fighting to have this case reopened as a murder investigation. The family suffered yet another tragic loss in 2016, when mum Marie was murdered. In Sarah's apartment on the 23rd of July 2016, she stabbed her mother to death. Sarah reportedly suffered a psychotic episode after coming off medicine for schizophrenia and Marie had been visiting her daughter regularly to check up on how she was. Sarah had rung her sister Sherry to say she was hearing voices and Sherry had told Murray, who went over to help. It was then that Sarah reportedly stabbed her mum 227 times and hit her with a fire extinguisher. One report stated that Sarah had heard voices telling her to carry out the attack and the family attorney John Ray publicly stated... It was schizophrenia. Sarah was hospitalized several times, and over the past couple of days, she began to hear voices. Between 2014 and the time of her mother's murder, Sarah had been hospitalized in at least two facilities in upstate New York. In February 2016, she drowned her puppy in her bathtub and was arrested for this crime. Sarah was charged with aggravated cruelty to animals and endangering the welfare of a child after she drowned a puppy in a bathtub in the presence of her young son Hayden. Hayden had been placed into Marie Gilbert's care after Sarah had spent some time in hospital for her mental health conditions. Sherry posted on Facebook about the news, according to People magazine, writing, "'Yesterday was the second most devastating day of my life. The first was losing Shannon. I can't believe I'm reliving this nightmare again. My mum, my best friend, the person I relied on the most in this world is gone.' Mental illness is a serious disease. We tried to get Sarah help many times since she was diagnosed with schizophrenia in early 2014 and she would get better and then her condition would get worse. A woman linked to the family said to the press, Sarah belongs in a facility where she can get treatment, not a prison. When she has moments of lucidity, I know she'll be devastated by what she has done. This is a family that needed a lot of help, but they weren't getting it. So, so tragic. This is awful. And Sarah was charged with second-degree murder and pleaded not guilty. Her attorney claimed that she couldn't be held responsible due to schizophrenia and she had previously wished to plead guilty, but her attorney had hoped that she would be found not fit to stand trial and so she could get the help she needed. The prosecution at the murder case said that Sarah had killed her mum because her mum had been the one to get her arrested over the puppy's death and because she had that temporary custody of Sarah's son too. Sarah was found guilty of second-degree murder and fourth-degree possession of a weapon. She told the court, I love my family and I'm very sorry for what I've done. She was sentenced to the maximum sentence of between 25 years in life in August 2017 and is currently imprisoned in the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women. One unnamed juror did speak to the press after after the trial and said, we feel that she has mental illness but she was also aware of what she was doing. Interestingly Shannon's third sister is someone we haven't heard much from and this is because she's remained much more private. Not much is known about Stevie other than that she testified that it wasn't mental illness that had led Sarah to kill Mari but drugs and long-term hate instead. She was instrumental however in the fight for Shannon's case to be reopened as a murder. And the most recent thing I can find out about this case is how the calls for the tapes of Shannon's 911 calls to be released was granted by a judge in 2020. But John Ray was still fighting for this late in the same year. So the basic timeline is that in March 2016, a judge ruled that the police must produce a transcript or recording, not including not just Shannon's 911 call, but also the neighbours calls that night. Then in 2018, a Riverhead judge ruled that Suffolk County must explain why they still weren't showing the 911 recordings. And the county attorney said that the recordings hadn't been publicly released because they were part of an ongoing investigation. They needed to remain with the Suffolk police. In 2019, police were fighting and trying not to release the 911 calls, saying that releasing the tapes would jeopardise their investigation and compromise confidential information. Because there have been no arrests, officials said that the police had a critical interest in preserving the investigation's confidentiality, including calls and witness statements. I still kind of go back to the fact that they said this is an accidental drowning. This is what really frustrates me. In 2020, police were still saying the calls were part of an on- ongoing investigation because they didn't know if Shannon Gilbert died by accident or if she was killed. It was ruled again that year that they needed to be released, and I cannot see anywhere that they have been officially publicly released yet. So Attorney John Ray has heard the 911 tapes, but he is under court order not to discuss the specific content. But he told one paper that they would shock the public. And he added we would learn more that the police's account of Shannon's death is willfully false. And then Shannon's mother Marie was given a transcript, but no one else in the family knows what the tapes contain specifically. Obviously Marie then sadly has died. Sister Sherry has said she knows it would be difficult to hear my sister's last words, but anything to help her case. And she has publicly stated that she hopes releasing the tapes would show her sister's death was no accident and it would potentially provide a useful lead. She said, we want to know if the public can identify any other voices on the tapes. So, just to confirm, obviously I said before it was the the client and the driver were also heard on the tapes. They have been ruled out by the police. They are on the tapes. It's public that they are speaking in the background of the 911 call. They have been cleared. So, basically, yeah, if there's another voice on those 911 calls, there's something else. But somebody might recognise something. So, aside from being a really tragic tale about two horrific instances within this family, how does all this kind of link with the whole case. Well, before I explain any further, we will hear from this week's show sponsor. When Shannon's body was found in 2011, it was part of a much larger search. So we're going to head back to Shannon going missing and to a topic that I have discovered I now absolutely love, police dogs. So the police needed support in trying to find Shannon and they involved officer Malia and his dog, Blue. So Blue was a seven-year-old German shepherd Over the summer, the officer and Blue searched the gated community where Shannon was last seen, but they didn't find anything. In December of the same year, they decided to head west. Officer Marius later said that he stuck close to the shoulder of the parkway because the vegetation was so thick, and he used data from the FBI, which showed that when bodies were dumped, most were disposed of around 30 feet from the road. It was the 11th of December and that afternoon shortly before 3pm in 2010, when Blue picked up a scent on the parkway. So Blue lived with Officer Mali at his home, and he was the only dog on the force's team in active duty at the time. He had been raised and trained by Officer Malia, and the pair were a team in all aspects of the word. He was, well, Officer Mali was a veteran of the force. He'd worked as a police officer since his 20s. And if you Google the two, there's loads of news articles about the different criminals they've apprehended, photos of them, because I'm sure people would want to see some pickies. So the pair discovered a body. It was wrapped in burlap sacking material and it was a skeleton. It looked almost complete, so forensic teams arrived. They thought perhaps they'd found Shannon, but that afternoon they found another three bodies nearby wrapped in this burlap sacking. None of them was Shannon. The four bodies are known as the Gilgo Four, based on the area in which they were found. So the police continued to search this area. By the following spring, they had found 10 sets of remains in total, eight women, a man and a toddler. Lots of the remains were wrapped in this burlap sacking material and the Chief of Suffolk County Detectives in 2010 surmised that this was specifically chosen not only because it was great as camouflage in this area, but also because of its ability to take on dampness, moisture and to breathe. So that promotes decay and deterioration of these remains. So the initial four women, the Gilgo Four, were Maureen Brainard, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman and Amber Costello. In March, the remains of Jessica Taylor were found and in April, the police found an unidentified female toddler, an unidentified Asian male and the remains of Valerie Mack partial remains of both Jessica Taylor and Valerie Mack had actually been discovered in separate area of Suffolk County in 2003 and 2000 respectively so this discovery was kind of like the rest of their remains that had been missing. Next another two more bodies were found an unidentified woman whose partial remains had previously been found on Fire Island in 1996 and an unidentified woman with a distinctive tattoo of peaches. Um, She was later found to be the mother of the unidentified toddler that the police had found. Eventually in 2011, in December 2011, Shannon's remains were recovered and this was about three miles east from the general area in which the others were found. It was an incredibly puzzling crime scene with links to a resort community on Fire Island, the east of Long Island, New York City. And whilst there were some common themes amongst the victims, there were also a number of differences too. The police have consistently stated that Shannon wasn't linked to the others and investigators have stated on numerous occasions that they don't think that all of these victims were the work of just one killer. So, what do we know about these victims? Valerie Mack went missing in 2000 at the age of 24. She was living in Philadelphia and working as a sex worker and like the majority of the victims we're going to talk about today, she was petite. She was 5 foot and 100 pounds. Not much is known about the circumstances surrounding her disappearance, except that sometimes she went by the name of Melissa Taylor and that she left behind a boyfriend and a young son. It's unclear why she wasn't reported missing. The same year that she disappeared, her torso was found wrapped in bin liners and dumped in some woods. But it wasn't until the rest of her remains were recovered by the Suffolk County Police that she was actually identified. So her torso had been found... Um literally in 2000, but they hadn't, they had nothing to to go by. The way that they then worked out who it was in 2010 was they used a genealogy site. So they searched this genealogy site and they found an aunt. And then through that aunt, they found Valerie's adoptive family. And eventually they found her son, who by this point was in his twenties. They were able to confirm that they'd found his mum. His DNA was a match. It was the first time that New York authorities had been successful in cracking a cold case using a genealogy website. And they did say at the time, you know, we're really, really glad that we've been able to solve this murder. We've we've really happy with this, blah, blah, blah. However, we've had to tell this this man that we found his mum and sadly she died when she went missing. Literally when she went missing, she'd been murdered reasonably quickly afterwards. The next person who police event identified went missing in 2003 and her name was Jessica Taylor. She was 20 years old when she went missing and she was also working as a sex worker. She advertised her services on Craigslist. Some of her remains were found shortly after she went missing and she was identified at the time. But her case went unsolved and then the rest of her remains or a lot more of her remains were then found um, in this investigation in 2010 and into 2011. Maureen Brainard, or sometimes known as Maureen Brainard Barnes, but I'm not sure, generally it's Maureen Brainard, she was 25 when she was last seen on July the 9th, 2007. So like many of the other victims, she was petite. She was 4 foot 11 and 105 pounds. Maureen was a single mother of two who fell into working as a sex worker who advertised on Craigslist when she faced financial hardships and worries about where she was going to live. Her sister Missy said that in two thousand seven Maureen had got a job at a telemarketing place and she was doing really well she got her own apartment and she was really proud of herself but very quickly things started to go wrong she was about to be evicted from her apartment and she was facing an expensive and reportedly quite ugly custody battle for one of her children so she and her friend Sarah headed to New York City to earn extra money as sex workers but she told her sister this was for modeling work so her sister didn't realize she was a sex worker initially she said to Missy on the phone the last time they spoke she kind of rang her from a train station in New York and she said see you in the morning like we're here for this photo opportunity thing and that was that like Missy just didn't think anything of it investigators then tracked Maureen's phone to Long Island and Missy was really confused by all this she knew that she'd gone there but She knew she wouldn't choose to leave her children, all of this, so she logged into her computer. It was when Missy logged into Maureen's computer that she made the shocking discovery about how far life really was spiralling for Maureen. Missy then spent some time with Sarah to reconstruct Maureen's last weekend. Sarah described how they'd learned they'd been banned from Craigslist for a few days, so they couldn't post ads for clients. So instead, they decided to update their photos and they hired a photographer. All dressed up, the two young women wandered around Times Square like carefree tourists. The following day, Sarah went home and Maureen stayed. She knew that she had regular customers that she'd be able to make money from. It didn't matter that she didn't have Craigslist to advertise because she could get in touch with her regulars. Missy spent years searching for her sister until three years later, Maureen's remains were discovered and the police determined that she had been strangled to death. Melissa Barthelemy was 4 foot 10 inches tall and 95 pounds and was 24 years old when she went missing on the 10th of July 2009. Melissa moved from her home in Buffalo to New York City to work as a hairdresser, and at some point she turned to sex work. When she stopped calling home in July 2009, her mum panicked. She began calling hospitals. She reported her missing to the police. The family had a horrible time when, a week later, Melissa's 15-year-old sister gets a phone call, and she can see on the screen it's Melissa's phone calling her. Everyone was really excited but there was a man on the other end of the phone. And in the weeks following Melissa going missing, her sister received seven calls from this man, who the police believe was Melissa's killer. He would taunt her awfully, He threatened her and he reveled in torturing her with the details of Melissa's murder. When Melissa was found, the police were able to determine that she had been strangled. Megan Waterman went missing in June 2010. She was 5 foot 5 inches tall, aged 22, and was trafficked into sex work by her boyfriend. She also advertised her services on Craigslist. At the time of her disappearance, she was staying at motel, and the previous day she told her boyfriend that she was going out and she'd call him later. She also phoned her daughter, who was just 3 years old at the time, that night, as she did every night. On the 6th of June 2010, Megan was seen exiting the motel, but she wasn't seen again. Her boyfriend was looked into and he was already on the radar of the authorities, but he was ruled out as a suspect and he said he didn't know who Megan's client was that night. Megan's body was found six months later and she also had been strangled. Amber Costello was 27 years old, 4 foot 11, weighed approximately 100 pounds. She was a heroin addict who turned to sex work to fund her habit and she worked in New York. She went missing on September 2nd, 2010, after going to meet a stranger who had called her several times and offered her $1,500 for her services. Her family believed that she was in a residential drug rehabilitation, so she wasn't actually immediately reported missing when she stopped responding to messages and phone calls, which I found so sad. They obviously just thought, well, she can't reply because she's in treatment, and she wasn't in treatment at all. Amber had actually turned to drugs as a teenager following a really tough childhood. She, this included sexual assault at the age of six and loads of other trauma through her life. And it just made me so sad. She made it to 27 years old, that was it. And she had also been strangled. The remaining victims are still unidentified and not much is known about them at all. So the first to be recovered was a woman the police have nicknamed Peaches due to this tattoo that was found on her skin and you can find an image of the tattoo online. It's really easy to find and the police really want to know if anybody recognises this. In June 1997 the dismembered torso of an unidentified young African-American woman was found at Hempstead State Park in New York. So this torso was found in a green plastic container and the victim had this tattoo on her left breast the peach tattoo it's like a heart-shaped peach it's got a bite taken out of it and drips coming out of it it's very unique so if you you know if you want to have a look online somebody would surely know that tattoo but this was 1997 now it's a long time now and on April the 11th, 2011, police discovered dismembered skeletal remains, which they at the time J- dubbed Jane Doe number 3. DNA analysis later positively indicated that the remains were from the same person. So the torso in 1997, and then Jane Doe number 3. DNA analysis also identified Peaches as the mother of Baby, called Baby Doe. So this was a skeleton that was recovered on April the 4th. The body was wrapped in a blanket and it showed no visible signs of trauma. It was determined to be that of a female toddler between a year and four years old. And Peaches and Baby Doe were also wearing similar gold jewellery. So this was definitely her child from DNA and um, nobody knows how the baby was killed. On the 4th of April there was a body of an Asian man found close to the Gilgo 4 remains. This person had died from blunt force trauma And this set of remains was called John Doe, or Asian Male. It was determined to belong to a man between the ages of 17 and 23 years of age, five foot six inches tall, and who was missing four teeth. He may have had a muscu... oh, I always struggle with this word, musculoskeletal disorder. I wish I had Mark with me to remind me how to say that, which would have affected his gait. Now, this remains this skeleton was found wearing women's clothing so it potentially indicated that this was someone who was transgender but there was no no way to know for sure they also said that there was um indication potentially that this person was a sex worker and I'm not sure how they got to this conclusion because I can't find this anywhere and this person had been dead for between five and ten years in September 2011 the police actually released a composite sketch of John Doe And you can, again, you can find that online and have a look for this person's face. Somebody may recognise this person. The final set of remains belonged to Jane Doe 7, so sometimes known as Fire Island Jane Doe, and these remains consisted of a skull and several teeth. They were linked through DNA testing to a set of severed legs found in a garbage bag on Fire Island 15 years ago on April 20th 1996. And Jane Doe, number seven, had a surgical scar on her left leg. It always makes me feel so sad when people die unidentified. It's tragic enough when they leave behind loved ones, but at least there are people mourning them that, that know about it and have some closure. These, you know, um, John Doe, Jane Doe, seven, peaches, this, the baby, I mean the baby... Who knows who is still looking for a loved one, potentially still holding on to a glimmer of hope, who hasn't been able to say their goodbyes? So, what has been happening in the years, over a decade, since these bodies were all recovered? As I mentioned in the first part of this week's episode, Shannon's family is still battling to get answers. And to this day, investigators are working on solving the puzzle of the Long Island serial killer, or the Craigslist killer, as he or she is sometimes known to. In May 2011, after finding all the bodies except Shannon, police speculated that because of similarities in the cases, Valerie Mack, who was at the time unidentified, and Jessica Taylor may have been murdered by a second separate killer. In November 2011, however, police said that they believed one person to be responsible for all 10 murders due to common characteristics between the condition of the remains and forensic evidence related to the bodies. They also announced that the perpetrator was almost certainly from Long Island. But then other investigators have said several times over the years that it is unlikely one person killed all the victims. Basically, nobody knows. And I'd love to hear from you guys. Do you think this is a serial killer that was killing all the way through? Do you think this is um, somebody who, you know, started back in 1996 and had a little bit of a break for whatever reason and then had a bit of a, a spree at the end? Or do you think that they've managed to stop? Do you think they've been caught for something else? Like, why would they now stop I guess because the bodies have been found, maybe they'd find a better place to hide their bodies with their victims. Who knows? But it is really interesting to me. I do wonder for them to all be in the same area and to be disposed of in a very similar manner. The FBI helped to create a profile of the killer and similarities between the number of the victims were highlighted. So petite, around five foot tall, around 100 pounds. A lot of them had hazel green eyes. The fact that these women posted ads online would have allowed the killer to scroll through photos in a search of his ideal victim. These women would have looked very similar. In early 2012, a man called James Burke became Suffolk County Police Chief. Now, this bit becomes another little bit of true crime case in this whole saga. It's mad. So Burke ended cooperation with the FBI on this case and other major investigations, Losing FBI technology and expertise may have showed, really slowed down this serial killer investigation. This isn't specifically pertinent to the case, but I found it really interesting, and we all love a bit of gossip, don't we? So, there was a personal reason for this guy not to want the FBI in his office. He was actually being investigated on federal charges. Now, I know I made it a bit light-hearted and said gossip, but this is actually really serious, because in 2012, in December 2012, A petty thief broke into Chief Burke's SUV and stole a duffel bag, which contained Burke's gun belt, a bag of sex toys and some porn. This is the chief, but okay, police chief got that in his SUV. The thief was then taken to a police station where he was handcuffed. He was chained to the floor and interrogated. I would say interrogated in inverted commas because detectives began to beat him up. And then Burke himself, the Suffolk County police chief, took over. When the FBI investigated the incident, Burke began a cover-up. He pressured detectives who witnessed the beating to deny that they'd seen the attack. Even the Suffolk County District Attorney Thomas J Spoter helped with the cover-up, and it was alleged that Burke stonewalled the FBI from getting involved in the investigation because they knew of his assault. A number of critics have said that major cases on Long Island, including this serial killer case, languished while Burke worked hard to stay out of prison. Eventually, both Mr Burke and Mr Spoter were convicted of conspiracy and Suffolk County became notorious as one of the nation's most corrupt law enforcement jurisdictions. In 2018, Geraldine Hart, an FBI agent, became the new Suffolk County Police Commissioner. She stated, Not having the FBI involved consistently from the beginning has definitely hindered this investigation. And so then the FBI joined the investigation officially. And it was at this point that they managed to identify Jane Doe Six as Valerie. In uh, in January 2020, Hart's office then released images of more evidence. So there was a belt with unusual markings on it. It was a black leather belt embossed with the letters HM or WH, depending on which way up it was meant to be held. It was recovered during the initial stages of the investigation, and Suffolk County Police believe this belt was handled by the suspect did not belong to any of the victims. And Hart has made it clear that this case is being fully investigated and still leads are being followed up on. And Hart also appears to be less willing to write off Shannon's death as an accident. So detectives have always officially excluded her from the list of the serial killers confirmed victims. But Hart was less committal when asked about it. And she actually stated that Shannon's cause of death was inconclusive, stated that the investigation remains active and all available tools are being utilised to try and solve the case. It's really, really interesting. So Geraldine Hart seems to have really done a lot since becoming the Suffolk County Police Commissioner. Personally, I feel like Shannon's case could well be linked to the Gilgo Four. It seems strange to me to have such a break um, with the cases from 1996, which I I think potentially those cases are linked in some way. I think the fact that the torso was one place and then the other remains were in another seems to kind of link them slightly. The area is not an easy place to get to. It wasn't easy for the police to find these bodies, so it was a good hiding place. But I just don't see that there'd be this massive gap Unless, potentially, this is a serial killer who was in prison for some other crime, has come out and then started again, potentially, and starts again around 2006-ish. But it does just seem a bit crazy to me. I'd love to know a little bit more about some of the facts around the case and the other evidence that's been found. I really wanted to um, have a bit of a chat with Mark about this and see what his thoughts were. And I really want to know what you guys think as well. So please do join us on social media and, and have a chat with us because I just don't know what to think. And I do wonder if Shannon potentially was linked to the Gilgo four, but not the others. Maybe they are completely separate, but I could see it being that they're all consistent. So more recently, the newest police commissioner for Suffolk County, Rodney Harrison, said, we will not rest until we bring those accountable to justice. There's a commitment, a relentless pursuit to identify the individuals and bring them to justice. That's for the family members to hear, to let them know that we will not rest and we will make sure we do everything we have to hold them accountable. And he also said that there were some great leads that are putting us in a great place to solve this case. We're getting there, but still some work needs to be done to get us across the finish line. And he also said he would release that 911 call from Shannon to the public if it didn't interfere with the police investigation. So let's see. That was very recently, but we'll hopefully see something. The key thing that seems to be discussed a lot with this case is the idea of cold cases being solved using genealogy. And one huge case that was solved decades later was the Golden State Killer, so Joseph James D'Angelo Jr., who committed at least 13 murders, 50 rapes, and 120 burglaries across California between 1974 and 1986, who was charged in 2018 and convicted in 2020. And that is a case that this really reminded me of it's a case that I've been fascinated by for a very long time when we found out that he'd been um like caught and and then convicted it's just been incredible to see that kind of from start to not start to finish obviously I wasn't around in the 70s but to be interested in for example Michelle Mac Monara's book and to have read up about this case for ages to then get a conclusion is just absolutely fascinating and wonderful to get that conclusion for the victims so potentially DNA and genealogy may solve this case as well and how wonderful if it did it would be so great if it could so there we go guys um that was the case of the Long Island serial killer thank you so much Vicky for your suggestion and thank you everybody for joining us and well joining me and listening this week joining us as the show um, so sorry it's just a solo up from me this week. I know it's always a lot better when you can have the, the conversation between me and Mark. But hopefully, you still really enjoyed the episode and come and talk to us on social media and let me know what your thoughts are. Don't forget you can also find us over on patreon.com should you wish to come and support us over there. We are also on buymeacoffee.com if you would like to buy us a coffee. Um, if it's something you're you want to do as like a one-off you can do it that way rather than through patreon if you're not able to subscribe and please don't forget to check out our show sponsor this week which is better help thanks for listening guys and we'll be back with you next week with both of us and yeah we'll see you there love you bye